0: This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern.
1: This is Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. My guest today, Rick Gates. Uh, Rick has written a book, an insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed and America lost. I had Rick on the show back on January 6th. Uh, and while we were taping the show, the uh, the Capitol was being stormed. So it wasn't quite clear to us at the time what was happening because uh, the the events unfolded so quickly. But uh, during the course of the hour, I'd love to get Callers, uh, call in and talk and ask uh, Rick some questions, and our number here is 800-222-5222, and that's KBC 790. Uh, Again, I'm here with Rick. How are you, Rick?
0: Good, Matt. Doing well. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for being on the show. So uh, what's what's new with you since uh, we last talked on January 6th?
0: Well, I think uh, the uh, the uh, presidents have changed. Um, that was certainly a big uh, moment, and uh, we've been uh, working on a number of things moving forward to 2020. Um, when we look at uh, you know what the Biden administration has been doing, you know, in the course of just over the first 50 days, um, that's quite a contrast to the way that uh, President Trump you know viewed policies. Um, so there are several you know issues that I think are going to weigh heavily in the midterms in 2022. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see which way America, you know, is is leaning. I mean, there are obviously issues with uh, immigration down along the border. There are, you know, a number of international issues which have just, you know, raised their head. I think, uh, you know, President Biden is being tested right now by a number of our adversaries. Uh, I think every president, you know, in their first hundred days, kind of goes through this, and uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the way the Biden administration, you know, deals with it because. The way that we're perceived internationally means a lot to a number of, you know, emerging democracies. and They're looking at the U.S. Um, as the model. So um, I want to be optimistic um, and I, I hope, uh, you know, things uh, you know start turning around for the United States in terms of our international prestige uh, and the way that we're viewed. But uh, I think there's going to be a lot between now and 2022 that will help shape those elections and then determine, you know, what happens next and whether the Republicans take back the House and or Senate.
1: Well, certainly uh, a lot going on. I guess I would uh, ask you to step back just a minute and uh, I think uh, ask you the question in terms of did Joe Biden win the election? Are you uh, are you in that camp or are you uh, still questioning the win?
0: Well, look, I've always said that I believe that there has been election fraud, not just in the 2020 election, but for decades. And it's now gotten to the point where all Americans need to pay attention to it. Um, Do I think Joe Biden won? Yes. Do I think there was election fraud? Absolutely. And I think America can do better uh, as a country and as a model of democracy to make sure that our elections are, you know, on point, free, fair and transparent. And we all have work to do, Republicans and Democrats.
1: Well, I certainly think that uh, the overwhelming evidence is that the fraud was not sufficient to overturn the election. I think you've uh, agreed with that. Um, and, of course, we want an election that is completely free from fraud, I and we should do everything that we can to uh, ensure our elections are free from fraud, obviously. Uh, it seems as though that um, President Trump kind of played on the fact that some mischievous acts may have occurred, and conflated that to the election was stolen, and there, those are two different things. Uh, you could have ten votes stolen, and that that is a fraud, but it's not going to change the results of the election if he lost Michigan by a hundred thousand votes, for example.
0: Absolutely, and and look, there are states where I do believe that fraud impacted. Um, uh the election in a way that it could have gone a different direction. There were clearly states like Arizona where I don't believe there was fraud that was just a outright you know number of senior citizens not voting for Donald Trump. And so I think when you look at it as a whole, there were issues with the elections and I think that's what we need to look at and examine and do better at um, and it's sure President Trump you know came out he, he is very, kind of black and white on this issue for him it's either fair it's not fair and in his mind based on what he saw based on the reports that he was getting uh and and the fact that there was fraud in some states it may not have been systemic fraud i think it caught in the semantics of some of those definitions sometimes but i think again as a country we've got to do a better job all around if dead people are voting it doesn't matter what state how many people we can do better. If people are voting from other states while living in a different jurisdiction, we can do better. And I think that's the message that we need to take away. So look, this is in 2016 when the president, you know, shined a spotlight then as a candidate on the way that the Republican uh, establishment worked, the way that the Republican convention worked in terms of him, you know, having delegates uh, taken away. he He shined that spotlight and he did the same thing on the elections in 2020. So I think we can all agree that we can do a better job. And, you know, I think we'll be arguing for years on whether or not, you know, it was ultimately stolen. Um, but, uh, you know, there was certainly enough to warrant. That's why you're seeing all this electoral uh, election law changes in a number of uh, in almost every jurisdiction right now. I think there's over uh, um, almost uh, 800 pieces of legislation, I believe, in different states uh, on electoral reform.
1: Well, in terms of the responsibility of the chief executive to communicate honestly with uh, the American public. He had a situation where President Trump was leading rallies saying stop the steal. The election was stolen, yet he didn't come forward with evidence that it was stolen. And that's, to me, is irresponsible and uh, I think, you know, led to the events of January 6th. And I guess I'd ask you the question of, What uh, do you think Trump's role was in the events of January 6th?
0: Look, I think words matter. And I think uh, there were a number of people that were, uh, you know, ultimately responsible um, for what happened on January 6th. And I think, again, it's a a measure of our country and our ability to survive and sustain, you know, our democracy. So do I think uh, President Trump had uh, contributed to January 6th on January 6th? Look, if you take his words on January 6th, it's really hard to build that case. If you take it over the course of several months, uh, and building up this idea that the election was stolen, he looked he at 70, over 75 million people vote for him. So clearly there were enough people that believed that he was the, you know, the rightful person that was elected. And when you start breaking down different states, like Pennsylvania with the mail-in ballots, there were some absolutely you know, disingenuous efforts and, 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 and in some cases illegal efforts um, that we now know. And I think, you know, as always, more will unfold uh, in this situation. Um, but I think there, I look, I think Congress was largely responsible for January 6th, to be honest. Um, there was a lot more that Congress could have done, uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, you know, the blame goes on both sides. And the fact that, uh, it got to that point, the boiling point, um, is going to be, you know, something that we're going to have to reflect on for quite some time. I understand they're taking down the fences, you know, around the Capitol now, I've been in the city, you know, over the last several weeks, um, you know, since the inauguration. It is depressing. It is not the America that I think we all you know, know and, and believe in. And I hope that we can use this to turn back and and really start, you know, building the, the bridges between the parties and the voters, because that's the only way we're ever going to be in a situation where we can kind of come back and treat each other with uh, civility and, and actually then end up with, you know, better and, and more transparent elections.
1: Well, I I have a, a big issue with saying Congress was to blame for January 6th. I mean, to me, it was clearly the president who inflamed the, uh, the mob that stormed the Capitol. He was the one who was making those statements. He was delivering that rhetoric. Uh, I mean, to the extent that there were Republican congressmen that were supporting that effort, maybe they bore some responsibility uh, as well. But... Uh, you know, it was irresponsible for Trump to be contesting the election without the evidence. I mean, if he had evidence, there were sixty cases that were brought, and none of them were victorious. So that, to me, as a lawyer, I say, uh, "Where's where's the beef here?" And they don't have it. So that, to me, is irresponsible and just beyond irresponsible. I mean, it's uh, just borders on criminal. But uh, well, what was if, Matt, it, Matt, think, let me, let me just, uh, we've ahead. got to go to a break here, but I'd like okay. uh, the callers to call in. If they have any questions or comments, please call 1-800-222-5222. That, again, is 800-222-5222. Uh, call KABC to uh, ask a question to Rick Gates or myself. This is Matt Matter and Unite and Heal America. We'll be back in one minute. You're back with Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern, and I've got Rick Gates on the on the line with us today. We're talking about uh, January 6th, and I've got a caller, Steve from Torrance. Uh, Steve, uh, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. It's really kind of just a basic question, regardless of how you know how the fraud shook out, whether there's evidence or not. A lot of people probably mistakenly believe there was a lot of fraud. Is there anything or should we do anything to kind of change that perception moving forward? And what what do you think we could do about it to change the perception?
1: That's an excellent question, Steve. And uh, I'll give my hot take on it and I'll, then I'll shoot it over to, to Rick. I guess, uh, obviously, we've got to be transparent. We've got to look at any things that are potential holes in the system, check the data up one wall, down the other to make sure – that people who are voting have the the proper paperwork in and have uh, processed their paperwork and and meet the requirements and guidelines, uh, so that we have a transparent process. That's that's my thinking. Uh, Rick, uh, what's yours?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question, and and uh, I think what you're going to see is a lot of things happening over the uh, next year and a half, two years before the 2022 midterms, and there's going to be a lot of election reform. And our, our Constitution, state legislatures have the power to create election laws for their individual states. So part of the issue that we had in 2020 is it was very politicized, uh, obviously, and it wasn't just the politicians. It was the judges as well. We had the courts that had to intervene in instances. For example, in Pennsylvania, there was no question that the Pennsylvania electoral law was uh, broken. It was you know, done in an illegal way. I mean, some of the justices admitted it, but the greater good— of making sure that people weren't disenfranchised from voting uh, was the prevailing factor, not according to the law. So you've got to really uh, fine tune these laws in each state. Ideally, you have some set of standards that are applied across all states, because right now we have basically 50 elections going on in the U.S., uh, plus the uh, U.S. territories. Um, So it's a very difficult process uh, to manage. And then that's where you get into a lot of the fraud. Um, Well,
1: uh, Rick, I think to clarify that for the listeners, I think what you're talking about in Pennsylvania were was that there were some votes that came in after the deadline for the election and uh, or on day of election. But uh, those votes were insufficient to sway the election one way or the other. um, And there was questions whether or not it was proper to accept or not accept those votes. Either way, accept them or reject them, Biden still would have won that, uh, that state. So I think that's the clarification no, 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 I'm not, on that I'm not front.
0: Exactly. I'm not contesting the number. I'm contesting the process. By law, if a state has to adhere to a certain process and it doesn't, then it's breaking the law. And when you look at it in a very simplistic way, and I think it's Steve's getting his question to, is how do we go back and how do we fix instances like this? That was a very specific instance of something that could have been fixed by the courts, by the politicians uh, if they had done so. And I think that's what you're going to see moving forward. But more importantly, and Matt, you touched on it, we have got to be able to identify a person is who they say they are when they vote. We had a number of instances where people were voting both in Nevada and California, as an example. That's got to be cut out, and that can be cut out. We have the technology. We have the means to do it. Uh, It's just that the states have to get behind it and be a position to enforce it. And that's we're not there yet.
1: Well, that's where it comes in is uh, having a federal election law. And there is some disagreement on this, but I think there's some constitutional support with federal standards being uh, applied across the board, which would then address your concerns, which is that we have a fair and clean game. And that's part of the problem is having 50 sets of laws You've got 50 yeah. different potential uh, sets of problems. So um, I think that having a uniform set of laws would be very helpful for everybody.
0: I totally agree with you. So, well, well, can I ask a quick follow up? Sure. Sure, well, Steve. Well, okay. Let's say, for example, and I think this is a great idea federal guidelines, at least for federal offices, you know, Congress, Senate, President. One, how do you enforce it? And two, where are you both at on voter ID laws? And then I'll just let you answer.
1: Sure. Thanks. Uh, I'll let uh, Rick take the first shot at this one since I got the first shot last time.
0: Yeah. On the, on the second part of your question, Steve, I absolutely uh, agree with voter ID laws. I think that there needs to be some set of a process or standards in place that we identify i mean just take example you know what's going on down uh you know south of the border i mean we have an influx of illegal immigrants coming across the border who's to say in 2022 a lot of those people don't end up voting how do you validate people so we have the technology to do it voter id is a great way Uh, a number of states use their DMV systems Uh, i don't uh, you know i think there's some issues with those but it's the best that we've got so far but if we if we sit down as a group and organize it from a federal or national level, then I think a lot more will get done. There is a, a kind of a national election commission um, that uh, does exist. It doesn't have a whole lot of power yet, but uh, my hope is that we see more of it um, over the next uh, you know course of the two years. Uh, but the problem is you got to go back to the Constitution. Right now, the Constitution says state legislatures have the power to uh, create and enforce election laws. And until that's changed, it's going to be a very hard situation because if the feds come out with some sort of guidelines, my sense is that some of the states are probably going to sue uh, saying that's unconstitutional. And that'll be an interesting uh, argument for the Supreme Court.
1: Now, I'm not an election law specialist, so I want to give that caveat going in. But I know that as a voter here in California, they always ask to see my ID when I vote. I mean that's what happens every time I voted in an election they they look at my driver's license they check it and check it off and it's it's a pretty solid process from what I can tell uh, that they're making sure that I cross reference they send a piece of mail to me that that tells me where to go I go there they have my name and ID there I sign it they've seen my ID they check it I mean it's pretty solid uh, yeah. Is it possible somebody could do some cheating? I, it's theoretically possible just like somebody can rob a bank, but it's doesn't seem highly likely. Steve, thanks for your questions and your call. Uh, anybody else, please call us at 800-222-5222. I've got Rick Gates on the line, author of Wicked Game and, uh, kind of like to pivot now to some other topics. Uh, One question is, Rick, is Trump's grip on the Republican Party slipping since uh, January 6th of 2020?
0: So it's a really good question. I think a lot of people sense that there is uh, a civil war within the Republican Party. And I I disagree with that. And I think this is actually good uh, for the Republican Party and what's happening. Uh, what you're seeing is a lot of the people that supported Donald Trump in 2016 were people that didn't, sta- didn't support the Republican establishment. And so you're seeing that kind of influx of people, and what you're seeing is kind of a situation where uh, others like Mitch McConnell uh, and you know even Kevin McCarthy to some extent are really having to work to bridge what people view as Trump supporters and party people. And so I think it's a good exercise to go through, and you're not. Uh, it's not uh, as if the Democrats aren't going through it either. They have the progressives and the more moderates, and you're going to see. Uh, I think a lot of you know uh, issues within those two party, uh, you know, within that party as well, the two factions. But you know, look, Donald Trump has the basically has command of the party right now. That's why you saw Kevin McCarthy going down to Mar-a-Lago to meet with them. That's why you see a number of candidates that are interested in running for office. Coming over, you know, and wanting his endorsement. It's not going to happen across the country, uh, but it's going to happen, you know, to a great extent. And look, right now, as long as the as President Trump says he's thinking about running for office, it has really stifled anybody from stepping forward and saying, "Hey, I might even challenge," you know, Donald Trump. But what one person say that yet?
1: But what about the straw poll down at the uh, the last uh, convention of the? Um, I can't recall the name of it. It's the Uh, Christian CPAC CPAC coalition, and uh, that he only garnered uh, 55 percent of the respondents votes uh, in a secret ballot as being the candidate that they're interested in supporting. That's a pretty, pretty substantial fall off of what he was at.
0: Well, first of all, you got to remember, it's only the people first that were there and then those that were there that actually voted, which is not a great uh, percentage. What you need to look at are the more national polls where you see a much higher level of support for the president. I mean, look, re- you know, using a CPAC poll is not really scientific at all.
1: Yeah, but doesn't uh, it, it tell you if- that the leadership of the party is uh, happy, you know, at least a good part of it, is happy to kind of move on from, from his uh, grip on the party?
0: Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, the leadership of the party absolutely wants to see Donald Trump go away. That's the whole, I mean, look, they never believed in him in 2016 and never thought he had a chance of winning. And now that he has brought his brand of politics to the Republican Party, they have no choice to deal with it. Even, look, I mean, everybody thought there was going to be a civil war between Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. And what happened a few weeks ago? Even Mitch McConnell said, look, if Donald Trump's nominee, I'll support him. Because Mitch McConnell understands politics. He understands how much power Donald Trump has right now within the party. And until he actually decides to go away completely or you know does something else and says i'm just not interested in politics anymore he's got a lock on it and and frankly they you know i'll give his uh, team credit they did a great job of realigning a number of the people in key organizations like the republican national committee the national republican uh, uh, senate senate leadership committee and, and the house committee uh, a lot of those people uh, in states as well are kind of sure. Donald Trump supporters and loyalists. So it helps. Well,
1: let me ask you a question before we go to break. How serious a blow was it to Trump, uh, his loss of his Twitter account?
0: Oh, I think it was devastating. I think he'll recover, but you've already seen the impact uh, that it's had. Look, he was always um, of the opinion that his Twitter account was his ability to communicate directly with the people, and that's what he loved to do. They cut out everybody else in the middle. And when that was taken away, yes, he lost his voice to a large extent. And I think there would have been a number of tweets on many issues um, had it not been taken away, and obviously that raises all kinds of questions about censorships, et cetera, which we can get into later. But at the end of the day, it, it was devastating for him, and, and I think you know, he will uh, work to find some form of that Uh, Moving forward, because that's his way to communicate directly.
1: Well, I completely agree with you on that front. And uh, I think that it was kind of an emasculating experience for him because, yes, it was his power and uh, probably worth like a billion dollars to him. That particular uh, mode of communicating to people directly and, and really being a newsmaker at every moment of the day. Uh, he could shoot out a tweet and get attention. Now he no longer has that. He's got to go through normal channels, and, and those channels are filtered and less people are seeing it. So it's a it's a dr- devastating loss to him. I agree on that front. Uh, you're listening to KABC 790. The show is Unite and Heal America. You've got Rick Gates as uh, our guest here today. Please give us a call, 800-222-5222. This is Matt Matter. And we'll be back with you in just one minute. This is Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter. My my guest, Rick Gates. Uh, Rick uh, wrote a book, The Wicked Game, based upon his uh, experiences being at the top of the campaign as a campaign manager and Uh, strategist uh, with his partner boss uh, Paul Manafort uh, went on to uh, play a leading role in the Mueller investigation as one of the key witnesses so um, you know this is where we're at in the interview I just wanted to ask you a bit about what we had talked about the last time you were on the show was uh, Oleg Deripaska who was a um, a client of Paul Manafort and yours who um, you you had worked with, and I believe he had funded or paid a fair amount of money, I think it was like $10 million, uh, I don't know if it was a year, to Manafort to help, in your words, help pro-democracy movement in Eastern Europe. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, in a number of uh, former Soviet countries, post-Soviet countries, correct.
1: Tell me, tell us more about the work that uh, you did for Mr. Deripaska during that time period.
0: Sure. Look, it was a uh, scenario where there are a number of emerging market uh, countries, you know, that are uh, looking at the ways that democracy uh, can change their countries, you know, both from a. Um, individual representation standpoint and economic standpoint, bringing in, you know, elements of capitalism. And a number of, you know, Eastern Europeans and other Europeans see the benefits of a capitalistic style of uh, economics. And so in order to get there, you need some sort of democracy, a transparent government, uh, a rule of law that, you know, protects that type of system. So the idea was to expand that model into uh, as many countries as possible. And look, I mean, it's, it's, it's now out. It's not just that, uh, you know, Oleg Air was hiring U.S. consultants and it was more than just Paul Manafort, but we now know from, you know, a number of documents that have been released that, you know, uh, Oleg Air was working with the FBI uh, to help them in uh, jurisdictions um, uh, across uh, the pond in the Middle East uh, and in other uh, Eastern European countries. So what, it's uh, interesting when...
1: Sure. I was just going to... Uh, Ask the question more pointedly, which, uh, which parties was uh, Oleg Deripaska supporting in Eastern Europe?
0: Well, it depends. I mean, there were, in different countries, uh, it was different political parties, but it was typically ones that were... Uh, pro capitalist um, ones that wanted to see a better system of uh, corporate governance when it related to businesses. Because regardless of where you are, as somebody in business? Uh, you have to make sure that if you make an investment in a country, that that investment is going to be protected. And in a lot of these countries, that's not the case. If you have a coup or assets are, are nationalized, uh, there are a whole number of uh, issues but that can which, impact any but which, type of investment.
1: Which pro, uh, which specifically, which political parties was he supporting
0: in terms of which country
1: uh any of the countries that you uh you worked with them
0: well, so in, in Ukraine, for example, we worked with the party of regions. He didn't have a direct involvement from our perspective. We were working with other individuals, but he was supporting parties, not one, but multiple parties uh, inside of Ukraine, uh, in Montenegro, in Romania, uh, in uh, France, uh, in other countries that he uh, has business in Canada, for example. So, and when you say support, remember, a lot of these countries have laws that prohibit uh, foreign uh, individuals, foreign uh, donations uh from contributing so just like george soros goes around the world and tries to influence elections you have people in other countries whether it's from china iran or russia trying to do the same thing in order to protect their business
1: but i would wonder why oleg deripaska would be subor- supporting democracy in eastern europe as he's a close friend of putin's and putin uh certainly wants eastern europe under his influence and control not uh, to be kind of pro-Western in its views, correct?
0: I would agree with that. Yeah, I think Putin has a much different approach. But again, I think when you look at the overall business framework, uh, I do think the Russians are savvy and smart enough to realize that they're going to try both. They're going to try to develop a system where the the businesses benefit as much as possible, but at the same time, absolutely tear down democracy. I absolutely agree with you. So I think they're playing both sides to some extent with the intent of, in in my view, and what I've heard other experts, uh, you know, uh, opine as well, is that Putin wants to create the uh, reemergence of the Russian Empire. That's really what he's trying to do. And in order to do that, he's got to tear down American democracy, which he and Xi Jinping in China and and others around the the world as our adversaries are absolutely doing.
1: Yeah. And well... That's why I would think that Oleg Deripaska, who's a close associate of Putin's and one of his top um, you know, at, you know, friends in, in Russia, would not be supportive of real democracy in Eastern Europe. I, I would think that they would be supportive of parties that would kiss Putin's ring as, as opposed to really being uh, um, democratic.
0: Yeah, look, Matt, I think it's a great point. I think it's a very simplistic point. And I think the more that you learn and know about these types of instances, and it's not just Oleg there, and Russia, it happens all over the world, that it's much more complex. And uh, certain leaders and uh, business people in those countries try to bring down the way that democracy works in the U.S. And they try to do it in other places in the world, but they also support it in other places in the world because it supports their business interests. So you're absolutely right, where the U.S. has a very you know, monolithic approach and saying, look, we want to see democracy, free democracy as many countries as possible. Other countries like Russia may say, hey, we want a version of democracy in Montenegro, but we certainly don't want it in Ukraine. And you've seen evidence of that where, you know, they've taken over Crimea and other instances. So it's a very complex issue. And I think it needs to be sorted, which is why it's problematic when you have presidents that come in four years and they're out in four years or even eight, they don't have a a very long view toward it. And guys like Putin and Xi Jinping, they're there for 20, 30 years. So they're able to take a much longer term approach to it. And I think it weakens U.S. democracy overall.
1: Well, that's that's why I questioned, uh, you know, your help for for the uh, pro-Russian government in Ukraine. Uh, this party of regions that uh, you and Paul Manafort worked for that was funded by Deripaska because essentially that was a pro-Russian government in Ukraine, which was not helping U.S. interests, in my view.
0: Well, so to be clear, Deripaska never paid any money to Paul Manafort for work in Ukraine. That was completely a different set of uh, business people that had nothing to do with oleg Deripaska. oleg Deripaska helped in other states like Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan others that were closer. Ukraine, totally different uh, scenario. And and, it, and it's important you raise that because I think a lot of people just assume that because Paul Manafort had a relationship with Oleg Deripaska and Paul worked in Ukraine for 10 years, that Oleg Deripaska was supporting him in Ukraine. It's completely uh, not accurate.
1: Well, it's hard to say that those things don't cross over lines when uh, he's paying $10 million to Paul Manafort for doing consulting work and Manafort just happens to be working for the party of regions in the Ukraine that, that's uh, a little too close to, for comfort in my humble opinion, but uh, maybe I'm naive.
0: Well, no, it's not that you're naive. You just don't have all the facts. And I think if you actually look at, you know, even within the Mueller report and other documents that have now been reported, uh, that was completely a different structure. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, Oleg Deripaska has struggled in places like Ukraine because they were so closely aligned and the business was a lot more competitive uh, and there were a lot more, you know, relations among the individuals that controlled a lot of the businesses. That's why Oleg Deripaska was going out uh, of that kind of uh, pocket of area and going to places like Montenegro, Romania, Bulgaria, uh, and other places, you know, really down in the Balkans and in other parts of the world.
1: So you're saying that. Uh... Deripaska did not give a dime to Manafort to help uh, Deripaska in the Ukraine with the Party of Regions?
0: Absolutely not. Absolutely. I and mean, you, if you actually dig into the Mueller report, you'll see that uh, Mueller uh, you know, found the same thing. It was a totally different—I know it's, it's, it may be hard to believe for somebody that doesn't have, you know, a, a kind of day-to-day basis of it, um, but it is uh, absolutely clear— uh, that Oleg was not uh, supporting Paul or his efforts in the Ukraine. That was completely done through a group of, in fact, some nationalistic Ukrainians um, from different parts uh, of their country, who, by the way, were all very much uh, uh, wanting independence from Russia.
1: So, uh, did you was was any of your work done for like Viktor Orbán in in Hungary?
0: No, no. We predominantly did uh, work in. Uh, different parts of the uh, Balkans, um, Montenegro specifically, uh, Ukraine, um, and uh, a few of the other individual countries, but none of that work uh, was done uh, by Deripaska. You know, to my I didn't have any involvement, in and I don't believe Paul did either. Um, most of Paul's work was focused on Ukraine and building the party of regions, and the primary architect behind that was actually uh, Renat Akhmatov, not uh, Ula Deripaska.
1: Okay. Well, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the inaugural committee investigation and the D.C. attorney general who's been investigating this and alleged uh, misuse of nonprofit funds to overpay the Trump Hotel. That was uh, for the listeners. uh, The Trump inaugural committee raised one hundred and seven million dollars, which was kind of a record amount. And um, Rick, you personally uh, managed the discussions with the Trump Hotels, and at the time, I believe, had been quoted as saying you were a bit worried about the optics of the inaugural committee paying such a high fee for um, using the Trump Hotel. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Sure. I'll comment very generally because it's still an ongoing investigation, and I think my lawyers would uh, you know, uh, have a, uh, a few words for me if I went into too much depth. Uh, But I will tell you what is kind of public record. And that is when you actually uh, look at the context of those emails that you're referencing, the Trump Hotel did go back and cut its fee. And what you will see coming out of this case is that there were different uh, prices for different hotels and the Trump Hotel was not in the uh, top category. So you're going to see more information coming out on that. Um, I'd love to be able to tell you a lot more because I want to share a lot more details about it but because it's an ongoing investigation i think my lawyers would uh, kill me if i uh, say anymore
1: <laughs> okay well are you st- so you're still talking with the um the D- uh the da or the attorney general who is handling that uh, case
0: uh no as far as i understand we're done uh, with our portion as uh, it's been publicly reported a number of us did depositions um and now there is a process i guess that uh both sides prepare before they go to a judge to determine whether or not there will be a trial. So the process that just occurred was discovery, um, and uh, that was kind of the latest. And I think there's a, a period of time where those uh, depositions will be you know, put together, um, and then uh, it'll go before a judge in D.C.
1: Well, you're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern, my guest, Rick Gates, author of Wicked Game, And uh, we'll be right back in a minute. If you could please uh, give us a call, 800-222-5222, and talk to us about uh, what Rick has been sharing with us about the inaugural committee investigation or any other topic you'd like to talk about. Again, 800-222-5222. This is Matt Mattern, Unite and Heal America. We'll be back in one minute. back with uh, Matt Mattern, Unite and Heal America. My guest again, Rick Gates. Uh, We're talking a little bit about the inaugural investigation, and one of the comments that I had read was that they could have hosted the events at other venues for free or a reduced price, and they didn't even consider those options. And uh, one example of kind of the overcharge was that the presidential prayer breakfast, they charged $5,000 for the same ballroom, they ended up charging the inaugural committee $175,000. That's uh, almost uh, 37 times more. Why Why uh, that price differential?
0: Yeah, Matt, you're going to see some of the facts come out of that. And that's, again, one of those scenarios where a lot of people just don't have the information. And again, I'd love to tell you all the details, but I will tell you this. The time that the prayer breakfast booked the hotel, it was in May of 2016, well in advance of when anybody thought Donald Trump was going to win. At that time, the hotel wasn't even open. And so when you look at where the prices were, not just for the inaugural committee, but for other entities and individuals that were staying at the Trump Hotel after the election, the prices not only changed at Trump, they changed at every hotel in Washington because every four years when an inauguration is held, that's what the hotels in D.C. do. Irrespective of whether it's a Republican or Democrat that wins, everybody, every, every hotel, every restaurant, every transportation service, raises its prices excessively because of the inauguration. And you're going to see more of this come out, you know, after the investigation, uh, you know, comes to a, a close in the
1: next several months. So you're telling me that other hotels were charging $175,000 for a room at or around that time?
0: Well, no, no the Trump hotel didn't charge $100,000. you are talking about a, uh, a a meeting room, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, no. Some hotels, absolutely. And remember, it was not just one room. It was a blocker and other hotels you'll see were uh, actually more expensive uh, than the Trump Hotel. And that's what nobody is pointing to yet. Um, And again, I think it's important as in everything that we watch and see when all the facts come out. Absolutely. Make your own. Absolutely. And And we're not there yet on this one.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm just I'm just uh, asking questions about Facts that I do know and things that you might know and and we'll wait and see what the investigation, you know, says at the end of the day. But That's how that's how this game is played. So uh, exactly. now pivoting to something you said earlier in the uh, in the segment was talking about uh, Putin being or actually Biden being tested by his adversaries right off the gate, out of the gate and. We've got Putin kind of challenging Biden to a debate and stuff like that. I kind of take that as Putin being a little nervous and he's got uh, Biden's kind of got him off his game a little bit that he's talking about. Let's have a, uh, you know, an Oprah type debate or something. What's going on here? Oh,
0: no, I disagree. You have to look at the context. First, Putin comes out and wishes Biden uh, good health. That's clearly a shot over the bow. About what everybody believes, you know, or Biden's, uh, you know, medical issues. and then secondly, offering to uh, engage him in a debate, knowing that Biden would never engage him in a debate because Biden doesn't really debate. So I think it's a complete. These and it's not just Russia. You have China, Iran, North Korea. North Korea rejecting, you know, uh, the overtures made by the Biden administration. These are all tests to see how strong you know the U.S. is going to be in the international community. Uh, look at the recent meeting with the Chinese delegation uh, and the U.S. Uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken in Alaska. Uh, I mean, that, that went viral when the Chinese came out with a 20-minute diatribe on why everybody in America thinks there's problems with its democracy. I mean, who is China to lecture us on democracy? And there was a two-minute rebuttal by the United States government, the Biden administration. And wow. I think they were taken off guard. And so I think it was a test, and you're going to see more of it. Uh, and I think the Biden administration would be smart to start actually following through on some of the threats that it's making against these nations so that they back off. And I do think they'll back off in the end, but Biden's got to show a strong position, and so far he hasn't done that.
1: Well, I, I kind of see uh, China has made a very bad uh, tactical or strategic move, which is, uh, challenging the U.S. and trying to push the U.S. around, I think that's just going to get the American people, um, you know, ready to uh, confront China. I mean, China can do nothing worse than to slap America in its face. Uh, they would be much better served with putting us to sleep rather than to to slap us and get us angry. Um, they've they had so, there's,
0: so it begs it begs a great question then, right? So then, why do it? And so you're seeing the Chinese try to show their muscle and might to see how the U.S. government reacts, because depending on that reaction, then they'll calculate their next move. But the fact, to your point, that they're willing to do that shows that at this moment, they think the, the Biden administration in particular is weak and they want to see how they're going to respond. Well, so I would yet. I would
1: I would disagree with that because Jia uh, was being uh, pretty bold and aggressive on the Trump watch already, and he was. Uh, coming out with bold initiatives, uh, basically preparing for Chinese dominance, and that was publicly stated that uh, they were planning to dominate essentially the, the world, and uh, that was stated on the Trump Watch. So this isn't anything completely new. But I think the continuation of that strategy is a wrong-headed one because it's it's woken the American public out of its lethargy, which had been just letting China run the game without us really challenging them and without us having a real strategy of dealing with the Chinese government, which is uh, does not have our best interests at heart. That's for sure so we've got to do a better job and the fact that uh, maybe america will wake up to that will be a good thing for america not it's not a po- yep. to me it's not a partisan issue we as americans all need to work to um kind of confront china on many different issues and uh, unfortunately we've been divided and and uh, fighting partisan battles versus focusing our energy on the Chinese, who are true competitors here.
0: Well, that's exactly right. We cannot allow to have uh, issues like this be politicized uh, within our government, whether it's a Republican, a Democrat, a presidential administration, or a congressional administration. We have to be able to come together in moments like this and fight against the Chinese, the uh, Russians, the Iranians, the North Koreans, because they are all looking to take us down. That's what their goal is. And again, it doesn't matter who's president. So to your point, it's but now at this stage, it's who is in leadership. And the only point I would add to your comment, the only thing uh, that I think Trump did differently than any president in history was uh, impose these strong tariffs on China. And I think that woke China up, um, which uh, uh, is a posture that aggressive, Um, you know, reaction uh, that you, uh, you know, you point out, which is absolutely true. And it is my hope, too, that the Americans do come together and that we don't see this as a partisan issue, as a Republican or Democrat issue, but that we actually come together on stuff like this, because that's where America needs to be united. I think that's where if it does unite, then it can be strong.
1: Well, I I actually um, did believe that uh, Trump's inclinations to confront China were correct, the methodology of the way that he did it was ham-handed and ineffective, uh, and the tariffs didn't have their um, didn't have the effect that I think he would have liked to have had, and that would have been best for the country. We did not get the intellectual property protection that we need. We didn't get some of the other things we need. Uh, the Chinese bringing fentanyl or supporting fentanyl being sent into this country is is absolutely, you know, criminal and and an attack on this country. Uh, Things of that nature uh, that we need to confront them on. The fact that they require American companies to give our technology to Chinese companies when they come and do business in China is wrong. And we shouldn't have ever allowed that to happen. And we should have stood up to that on day day one. Um, You know, and things of that nature. I mean, the... The stealing of our intellectual property is rampant, and we've got to stop that. And uh, unfortunately, little to none of that was accomplished by the tariffs that Trump imposed. And quite frankly, we've got to do a much better job going forward.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. And I'd say the only other thing I'd add that China gave us is, of course, you know, uh, the COVID virus as well, um, which we you know also need to take into account. And you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, this is the problem with, uh, unfortunately, uh, all politicians in Washington. They talk a lot and they don't show any, you know, real action. And we've had administrations, Republican Democrats that have not taken action against China. And it's allowed China to be, you know, built into this, uh, you know, massive you know, kind of empire that uh, they are gunning for the U.S. and they're, they're seeking to take over dominance. Uh, and I think soon if they're not already there, their economy obviously is Um, You know, the world's largest are pretty close to it. Um, But that all says exactly what you you point out that we need to go to. And that is finding ways to combat China uh, and and doing it, but actually not just talking about it, but doing it. And you're right. Trump was on the right path with the tariffs. They didn't have the overall greatest impact because China started throwing tariffs, you know, on a bunch of our stuff, which is, of course, their retaliatory measure. Uh, But we've got to be more clever. We can't just take kind of status quo approaches uh, with China because they are going to come at us hard. And if we don't do something as a unified country, we're going to be continued to just kind of be weakened, you know, piece by piece. Uh, And and I think any of us would would hate to see that, especially at the, you know, uh, price of, uh, you know, the Chinese coming after us. We
1: can't allow that. Well, um, just uh, I I would disagree with the one point that you made there about uh, this being kind of a – I think the inference being that China weaponized uh, the covid virus uh, against us, I don't I don't buy that. But uh, I would say before. Well,
0: I'm, not, I, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not necessarily suggesting weaponized. I'm just saying we got it from China. I mean, it came, you know, from them, whether they did it deliberately or accidentally. You know, we'll, we'll let all the uh, you know, the, the illustrious who reporters, W.H.O., Uh, You know, investigators, uh, you know, come up with their
1: before we uh, before we sign off here. I just wanted to give you an an opportunity to tell the audience about your book, The Wicked Game, an insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed and America lost. Um,
0: Absolutely. I appreciate it. The the book was uh, uh, published uh, at the end of last year, and it really chronicles, um, you know, what happened during the 2016, why Trump was successful, how he won. Uh, how he fought his own Republican Party, uh, and then it, it chronicles kind of, you know, a behind-the-scenes look at everything that happened during the election and during the inauguration. Uh, not with really any bias either way, but for people just to see facts, because I felt like most Americans don't get a chance or opportunity uh, to really see what happens behind the scenes.
1: Well, I, I read the book, Rick, and it was entertaining and, and illuminating in some respects. This pre-recorded uh, show furnished by Matthew Madden.